It's actually a good, this feeling I'm feeling uh, is part of the story I wanted to share at the beginning. I saw the movie 1917 uh, a couple years back. It's all a blur with COVID. I don't know when it came out, but it felt like a couple years ago I saw the movie 1917. And this, if you didn't see the movie, it, you don't need to see it for this to make sense. But this whole movie is filled with really long scenes and really long takes. And then the editing is just stitched together in such a way that it feels really like the whole movie is one long take. It's just never ending. It, the time where you think there's gonna be a cut and move to something else, they just keep walking, they turn a corner. It it's a, a feels like a long movie in that sense because it just keeps going. And I remember as I was watching, it's a great movie, I saw it in the theater. And what I remember as I watched it is I was at the edge of my seat the whole time. Uh, both because it was a tense, uh, heavy movie. It's a war movie. But since it moved from one scene to the next, it was unrelenting. I remember thinking in the middle of it, man, I need a break. Like, I just need to take a breather. But I just couldn't stop because it, it, it didn't stop. It moved from one scene to the next, to the next, to the next, seamlessly. Now, I haven't seen it in a while, so I could have the timeline wrong in that sense, too. But I remember there was one moment in the middle. And if I remember it right, there was about two minutes uh, where the, the two main characters, they sat down in a field. And it was in real time. They sat down for, it was not long enough, but it was this moment where you could take a break. You could take a breather. Your shoulders would drop. Your hands would kind of unclench. Uh, in the theater, it felt like there was just this collective sigh because it was unrelenting for like an hour. And then all of a sudden, they sat down and everybody just took a breath. This morning, we're going to be continuing on in our series in the book of Acts. And this is one of those moments where it feels unrelenting. Uh, Paul is facing uh, persecution. He's facing injustice. He's facing hostility. And you think, oh, man, I just need a break. I'm sure Paul just needs a break. And the shoulders are tense. The, the knuckles are white. And we're just holding on, uh, waiting for this breath. And the very last verse of our passage today feels like one of those breaths where our shoulders can drop or we can have this sigh of relief that collectively as, as the weight builds we get this moment of respite and so Paul made it to Jerusalem we looked at this last week he knew that things were going to get hard but within a few days of him being there he is grabbed he's beaten he's arrested and he takes the opportunity as he always does to proclaim the gospel proclaims the gospel. He tells of the good news of Jesus and how that good news is for all people. Uh, I mean, if it, it's a true story, uh, but if I was writing it, if this was not a true story and I was writing it, I think in this moment I would think, man, the, the audience needs a rest here, but it doesn't happen right away. The story continues with unrelenting rejection and assault. And I can only imagine what Paul was feeling uh, in this moment, as we'll look at this morning. He ends up stuck in a prison cell, likely scared, tired, really uncertain about the future. But our passage ends today with that sigh of relief moment where Jesus comes to him and encourages him. He says, take courage. And again, I imagine this being that shoulder dropping, uh, the nails release out of your palms. This moment where Paul can, can take a minute to rest, be encouraged, and press on. And so maybe this morning you are in your own uh, prison cell. How are you feeling? 
when I say these things about Paul, does that sound familiar to you? Scared, tired, uncertain about the future? In our passage, Jesus was speaking specifically of Paul, but as we'll look at, my hope is that we can all come away this morning feeling that shoulder-dropping, sigh-of-relief feeling as we rest in the hope that Jesus can be with you, and he is with you, and he is for you. And so our big idea this morning is this, our big idea. God may bring you to some scary places, but take courage. He will never abandon you. God may bring you to some scary places, but take courage. He will never abandon you. And so as we work through our passage, we're going to see a few different confrontations, uh, confronting injustice, confronting hypocrisy, and finally, a confrontation with Christ, where Christ comes to Paul. So first, let's start with confronting injustice, and let's read Acts chapter 22, 22 through 24 for now. Up to this word, this is when Paul was uh, telling his story. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and say, said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So why were they so angry? I mean, angry is an understatement. Paul powerfully shared his story, his story of an encounter with Jesus, and he concluded his defense that he was making of his own experience by sharing how he had been commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel message to the Gentiles or those who were not Jewish. And this infuriated the Jewish audience. We see up to this word, they listened, then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Again, anger is an understatement. They're flinging off their cloaks, throwing dust in the air. It's a way to express their disgust, their anger of what they perceived as blasphemy. And so the Roman, Roman tribune or commander, he takes Paul away. He needs to get down to the bottom of this. What's Paul's deal? Every time this guy speaks to people, they go nuts. They lose their minds. And so he decides to find out. How does he decide he's going to find out? He says, I'm going to torture this guy. And he says, Paul will be examined by flogging. Now, if you've been with us through the book of Acts, you know that Paul is no stranger to being beaten up. But this flogging is next level. Uh, the Roman practice of this flogging was the lashing of the bareback with a leather whip embedded with glass, metal, or bone. It frequently resulted in the death of the person that was being flogged, or if not death, permanent disability, just because it's so violent. So Paul is in a bad spot. Right? There's people that want to kill him. They're saying, oh, let's pull Paul out, but we'll just torture him instead. So let's read on, verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. 
So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So I don't know about you, if I was Paul, I think I would have divulged this information a little bit earlier, but he waits till the last second, he's literally being stretched out for the whips to be flogged, and he asks him a question, is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen? Paul knew that it wasn't. A Roman citizen is entitled to a trial. And now one could become a Roman citizen a few different ways. You could become a Roman citizen by birth, uh, where your citizenship is passed on. Uh, you could receive the citizenship as a reward for service. Or it could be purchased. And less than purchased, really, it was more of a bribe. You could pay somebody off. Uh, if there was corruption, you could gain citizenship that way. And so the tribune earned his citizenship. Uh, from the language it looks at, it looks like he gained it through payment of some sort or bribery. And so what he may have been suggesting in his statement of verse 28 there, where he says, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, was to emphasize the value of this citizenship uh, and almost be sarcastic to Paul. Paul is a lowly Jew to him who following his beating at the temple, he was just beat up right before this too, we got to remember, probably wasn't looking terribly noble. Paul, though, follows up the tribune's comment by saying that he is a citizen by birth. That's the most respected way to be a citizen. And so we see a few things from Paul in this moment. Uh, and this is a hard, uh, I, I warn you in advance, this is a hard thing to apply and grasp. But we see Paul in this moment give us an example that sometimes we need to confront injustice. Sometimes we need to confront injustice. Now, as Christians, we are commanded to submit and obey our governing authorities. They are appointed by God. We need to pray for them. That said, when the government doesn't enact its duty justly, Paul gives us an example when it is appropriate to confront injustice. There has been a lot of talk about this as of late. A lot of talk about this considering the government-mandated lockdowns and how the church is or is not responding to those lockdowns. Again, this is a complicated subject, one that we will not have time for full treatment of this morning. But what we can agree on is there are times when Christians must confront injustice, and there are other times when they don't. That we see in Romans chapter 13, which is the chapter that speaks about our duty to obey our governing authorities that God has put in place. R.C. Sproul says this about Romans 13. The principle is easy. The application is difficult. We are not free, however, to disobey the civil magistrate when we disagree with it or when authorities make us suffer or experience inconvenience. It is ironic that this master text on civil obedience was written to the Roman Christians who were under the heavy hand of imperial Rome. Now, like I said, this is a complicated, complicated subject, and it's one where Christians may very well disagree on the application. Because uh, although, just like Sproul says there, this doesn't just give us a, a wide open thing to just do whatever we want, whenever we want, but we also see examples like what Paul's doing and examples in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles are told not to preach, you cannot preach, but they go and they do it anyway because the Bible commands them to do it. So there are times when Christians may need to confront legal injustice. 
like being tortured without a trial. And so how do we apply this today? Tiny takeaway. How do we apply this today? This might seem like a cop-out, but these kinds of decisions need to be drenched in prayer. Absolutely drenched in prayer. We need to be constantly looking at Scripture. What are we commanded to do in Scripture? And we need to seek wise counsel. There are many places in the world that are facing radical injustice, like Paul is facing in this moment. Radical injustice. We need to be holding up these brothers and sisters in prayer as they confront this kind of injustice. And so now the tribune, he's sitting there, he's stuck, right? What's, what's the tribune going to do? He has detained and was ready to torture a Roman citizen. So he says, all right, let's put pause on that plan. He doesn't go as far as releasing Paul or anything logical like that, but he uh, doesn't resort to torture. He still needs to know what's going on. And I imagine him sitting there, you know, scratching his head saying, I can't figure out what's going on. I can't even torture the guy. Ah, well, I'll go to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council. They'll, they'll know what's going on. And just as Paul confronts injustice, we'll see him confront hypocrisy as we read on verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound him, Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set, them, set him before them. So Paul is presented to the council. This is not a golden ticket, right? Flogging was a terrible prospect, but this isn't uh, any better. Remember, it was such a council that condemned Jesus to be executed as an enemy of the state. So chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have, lived, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul leads off with his defense. And he doesn't get more than a sentence in when he is struck on the mouth. The high priest Ananias was known by other historical sources for being a wealthy cruel, and corrupt high priest. And we see this here. He doesn't like what Paul's all about, and so he commands that Paul gets struck. This is wildly inappropriate on a number of levels, but in legal proceedings, you couldn't just hit somebody without cause. Paul wasn't even given a chance to really make his defense. But Ananias, again, this is, there's been a number of Ananiases already. This is new Ananias, the high priest. He exercises his authority through physical attack and intimidation. And so just as Paul spoke out against legal injustice, now he speaks out against hypocrisy. Let's read verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul calls the high priest a whitewashed wall. Imagine a broken down, crumbling wall with a fresh paint job. It may look pretty, but its actual state is far from it. You may recall Jesus using similar language against hypocrites, calling them whitewashed tombs, saying, hey, you might look good on the outside, you might have it all together, but on the inside, you're dead and you're rotting. And so Paul says, to paraphrase, how are you judging me according to the law that you break the law? 
You're judging me according to this law, yet you break the law. You hit me without cause. Now the vibe in the room changes. Everyone's like, whoa, you can't say that about the high priest. And so Paul's reply next is debated what he meant. The reply he makes in verse 5. Some would say that he's honestly apologizing, that he truly didn't know this was the high priest. And so he quotes from Exodus 22. And he says he wouldn't have said that if he knew that this was the high priest. Now, there are a number of reasons or theories why people think he could, he may not have known who this high priest was. I mean, he hasn't been in Jerusalem a long time. Uh, maybe he didn't know who the high priest was at the time. Maybe because the tribune kind of called this meeting together hastily. Maybe the high priest wasn't dressed any different and, and Paul wasn't able to identify him. Uh, others think maybe uh, he wasn't able to see who struck him. Maybe he was or who commanded him to be struck. Maybe he was behind him, or maybe uh, his poor eyesight that many believe Paul had from his letter to the Galatians. But others would argue that uh, Paul wasn't apologizing. He was actually trying to make a point with his comment, that he was saying effectively, of course I wouldn't say this to the high priest, but this man is not acting like a high priest. So in a sense, he's saying, I respect uh, the rank, but I do not respect the man. And either way, though, I don't think Paul is looking to simply egg on or agitate. That's not, uh, you may think it's kind of, some of the things Paul does seem abrasive, but that's not really his style. He is thoughtful with his words. And so I don't think, uh, even though the effect was agitating, that that was his, his goal necessarily. He isn't looking unnecessarily to just poke the bear. And neither should we. We need to speak the truth, and sometimes that truth will not be received well. Sometimes that truth will not be received well, but the goal is not to fight for fighting's sake. If the case was that Paul was making a point to say the high priest wasn't acting very high priestly, we can learn that there are times when we need to confront hypocrisy. Just like there's times when we need to confront some injustice. But on the flip side of that coin, if Paul truly didn't know this was the high priest, we need to take away that we should be willing and ready to apologize. Let's keep reading uh, verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so the council, they're divided, and they're losing their minds. Paul has proven that he is not afraid to be in the thick of things. He is not afraid to be in the thick of it. So I don't think what he's doing here is simply trying to misdirect and take the heat off of him. He's saying, hey, look over here, and slips out or something. What he says here is true. It is because of the gospel, and it is because of the resurrection hope that he has that he is on trial. Now, the effect it had was dividing the council. 
Right? And he even got some of the Pharisees to say, maybe this guy, maybe he's right. Maybe he's with us. But as Luke, the author of Acts, says, the Sadducees, I could make a lot of Sadducee jokes here, but the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees, they, they denied Jesus' resurrection, uh, but they believed in the resurrection in the end times and that Israel's ultimate hope was a bodily resurrection. And they also believed in spirits and angels. And this disagreement turns violent quick. Enough that the tribune thinks that Paul will be, graphic language, torn to pieces. And so he gets him out of there. Paul is so consistent, and we're going to see more consistency as we keep going through the book of Acts, that he proclaims the resurrected Christ. It really was his hope that Jesus, God's only son, came to earth to live a perfect life in place of humanity who simply can't, simply uh, chose not to live a perfect life. And we are part of that humanity. We live in rebellion against a perfect God who created the world. We all have sinned. The kids' catechism question uh, this past week was, what is sin? It's a really good question. What is sin? And the answer is this, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. And we are all guilty of this. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty of this. Yet Jesus came, died, paying the penalty for sin and took our place. In exchange, he credited to us his own righteousness, his own right living, his perfection. And Jesus, we, we know the story. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He demonstrated that the price had been paid. God's justified wrath had been satisfied. Jesus substituted himself in our place. He took the penalty. And so if you are not a Christian and you're listening in this morning, you can't say that this is absolutely your hope if you haven't repented turned from your sin and turned to trust in jesus please investigate this please dig in I'm not trying to pull wool over your eyes but investigate these claims reach out to us or talk to the person who pointed you to this live stream today could be the day of salvation for you the day where you can stop having to work to try to earn your own salvation. The day that you can stop putting your hope in things that just can't hold that kind of weight. Because the only truly good person, Jesus Christ, holds out his hand to you. And he says to trust him to hold you up. To make a way for you to be made right with God. Not as a result of any works that you can do. But it's a free gift of his grace alone. So the resurrection is central to our message and our hope. The resurrection is central to our message and hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14 says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We must continue to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we need to be prepared for mixed reactions. 
Paul's hope is in his resurrected Savior. I can't imagine what Paul's feeling in this moment, though. He has this unshakable hope, but he's alone. We are not meant to be alone. We are meant to be in community with other believers. And just like this unrelenting movie that feels like one take, one scene after another just keeps coming, this bombardment, unrelenting bombardment. Paul is alone and he is probably weary. Arrest after arrest, beating after beating, threat after threat, defense after defense. He keeps narrowly escaping death. And he's sitting again in a prison cell, maybe wondering, how do I press on? How am I even going to survive long enough to get to Rome? Did I say the right things? Am I being faithful? I was warned not to go to Jerusalem. Am I even doing the right thing? But this moment, this next verse is that breath of fresh air, that sigh of relief. He's confronted injustice. He's confronted hypocrisy. And now he's confronted by Christ. Let's read verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I feel the shoulders drop. This moment between the Lord and Paul is a personal uh, and particular moment in history and time, and it's a particular commission to Paul. But I want to spend our last few minutes considering what this interaction meant for Paul and how consistent with Scripture we too can be reassured that our shoulders too can drop, uh, can drop, that we can take a sigh of relief. And so our first assurance is this, Christ is with you. Christ is with you. In this passage, we see multiple times where somebody is standing by Paul. In 22:25, we see that Paul makes a citizenship to a, uh, makes an appeal to his citizenship to a centurion who is standing by him. In 23 verse 2, we see that Paul is faced with more injustice and hypocrisy when those who stood by him struck him on the mouth. Paul has faced a painful, scary few days of unrelenting injustice and mistreatment, and he can't ignore the contrast of those who stood by him in those moments. In verse 11, following that the Lord stood by him. The risen Christ was with Paul in his dark moment. He stood by him, not to condemn, not to strike him, but to encourage him. And so if you are listening in this morning, and if you know Christ, he stands with you. He promises to give you rest. He can sympathize with you in your weaknesses. And he may not be standing next to you, in your figurative prison cell visibly, but he is as much, if not more, with you today. Consider Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Famous verse, the Great Commission. And if we take out the, the command section in the middle, we can see that Jesus reminds us of who he is and his authority and that he's with us. Verse 18 says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority, bold claim, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And looking down to verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What does this mean? What does this mean if you're a Christian? 
It means that Jesus is with you today. He didn't simply save and move on. Like the superhero movie where uh, superhero's there and then you turn and you come back and he's gone. Jesus didn't, didn't give up on us. He is with us today. Dane Ortland writes this. The New Testament teaches us that we are united to Christ, a union so intimate that whatever our own body parts do, Christ's body can be said to do. Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelops his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. His actions on earth in a body reflected his heart. The same heart now acts in the same way toward us, for we are now his body. We also have, we have the Holy Spirit. We also have God's word, the Bible. God has revealed to us what we need in his word. We get to know and we are reassured by God's presence through knowing him. We know him more by reading, studying, meditating on his word. Christ is with you. In a minute, we're going to sing the song, Jesus Strong and Kind. And you'll notice in the last verse, there's a pivot where he, uh, instead of I will come to him, he will come to me. Christ is with you. Sometimes we need a friend to simply be with us, to be, there is beauty in a simple presence. And for us, maybe that's the best thing we can do when comforting a friend because we might say something unhelpful. But Jesus doesn't stop there with simple presence in his comfort. We see that Christ is with you and Christ is also for you. Christ is for you. Jesus says to Paul, as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so even before we look at the commissioning, what comes after that, we see his encouragement. He had commissioned Paul to preach the gospel. We see that Paul was constrained by the Spirit, constrained by the Spirit in chapter 20 to go to Jerusalem. And he faced flack for it. He faced questions. Paul, don't go. It's not going to go well for you. Yet here he is. His Savior and King says, well done. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Well done. That's a foretaste of the words that Paul and we alike long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus says to Paul, you have done what I needed you to do in Jerusalem. Well done. He says, take courage. Hang on. I am with you. I am for you. You are being faithful. And finally, this leads to Christ's commission. Christ is with you. Christ is for you. And Christ commissions you. Jesus says to Paul, just as you were faithful in Jerusalem, so you will testify about me in Rome. Take courage courage. Hang on. I am with you. I am for you. I am sending you. Jesus is with Paul in this dark place. He reassures him of the mission. He reassures Paul of his calling. And so we too can take comfort in a Savior who has all authority on heaven and on earth, who is with us always, even to the end of the age. And he sends us too with a commission. You may or may not be called to go to Rome specifically. But if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, you are called. 
again, the part in the middle, the Great Commission. If you are a Christian, you are called to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Trevin Wax writes this. What is God's call on your life? What are the most essential aspects of that calling? Trials give us the chance to go back to the basics of what we believe and why and return to the essential elements of discipleship and evangelism. The more you zero in on one or two things you know in your heart of hearts God has called you to do, the better you will be able to figure out how best to express that calling during this season. Your calling can endure this calamity. Trust that your obedience to God's call in your life will bear fruit, no matter how dry the season. Such an encouragement. We need to be reassured of that call. Yes, you may be weary, you may be scared, you may feel alone, but take courage. Jesus is with you. Jesus is for you. And Jesus commissions you. You may feel like a pretty fragile vessel right now, but that's okay. I want to conclude with just a, a few sections from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And finally, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us, that you would give us wisdom to confront injustice and confront hypocrisy, 
when we must. But God, we need your wisdom. We rest in confidence that you will be glorified, that your plans will not fail. God, we trust you. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Christ who is with us, Christ who is for us, and Christ who sends us into the world. God, help us to meditate on that truth, to be confident of our call, and to be faithful for your mission, that as our love for you would grow, so would our love and faithfulness for your mission. We can only do this by your help, our God and King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.